0: Hi, all. My name is Christina Beretta, and I'm a pediatric pulmonologist at the University of Wisconsin. And I'm here today with Ryan Thomas, who is a pediatric pulmonologist at Michigan State.
1: Today, we're bringing you a new podcast within sort of the ATS family of podcasts called Title Volume. The goal of this podcast is to examine some of the core concepts of pediatric pulmonology. When I was a resident and I had been accepted into my pulmonary fellowship, I was really looking for resources to help get a head start preparing for my fellowship. But apart from sort of the standard textbooks and some physiology lectures online, there really wasn't anything out there sort of focused on the pediatric pulmonary space. So Christina and I have started this sort of sub-podcast within the ATS Pediatric Podcast Stream to really focus on... Core concepts of pediatric pulmonology. While our target audience is trainees and early career physicians, we really do feel this title volume podcast will be useful for a wide range of people, including some of our allied specialties and even some of our more veteran physicians just looking for a refresher. So we're pretty excited to kind of kick this
0: off. Yeah, so today Ryan is going to talk about spinal muscular atrophy especially in terms of airway clearance strategies. We'll start by describing a case of a child with SMA whose case involves many of the challenges we as pediatric pulmonologists face when taking care of these children. We'll plan to review the pathophysiology of SMA and the mechanism by which these patients are prone to atelectasis, discuss the pathophysiology of atelectasis, and then discuss strategies to prevent and treat atelectasis in this patient population. So here we go. The care of children with neuromuscular weakness is a critical part of our expertise as pediatric pulmonologists since neuromuscular disorders can lead to a variety of respiratory complications from chronic respiratory failure to atelectasis. Children with SMA are obviously very prone to these complications. Ryan, could you start by describing a case of a child with SMA that you have cared for?
1: This was one of the first cases of SMA that I took care of when I was in fellowship. And it was sort of what got me down the path of trying to learn more about the pathophysiology of the respiratory complications of SMA because it was such a difficult case. It is a five-month-old with type 1 SMA who was not requiring any baseline respiratory support but was admitted for an elective G2 placement. She tolerated the procedure well and was transferred to the PICU intubated for postoperative care. At the time of transfer, she was on a ventilator with a tidal volume of 6 cc's per kilo and a rate of 24 with PEEP of 5, pressure support of 5, and FiO2 of 50%. She was started on an airway clearance regimen of cough assist with a pressure of 20 over negative 20 every four hours along with IPV. Her ventilator settings were gradually weaned. She was extubated to CPAP and did well and was transitioned to high-flow nasal cannula with a flow of 6 liters per minute at 21% FiO2. She abruptly, several hours later, developed respiratory distress and was placed back on BiPAP, pressures 9 over 6 with a rate of 20, 21% FiO2. She subsequently required higher pressures and FiO2, and a chest x-ray was done that showed complete volume loss of the right lung.
0: Wow, so that's definitely a challenging case already. Can you talk a little bit more about what spinal muscular atrophy is?
1: So spinal muscular atrophy is a neuromuscular disorder characterized by hypotonia and weakness. It's caused by degeneration of the anterior horn cells in the spinal cord and motor nuclei in the lower brain stem, and occurs in about 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 25,000 live births. It's broken down into four types based on severity, with type 1 being both the most common and most severe.
0: That's actually a pretty high incidence compared to other autosomal recessive diseases. Can you talk a bit more about how SMA can manifest clinically?
1: So it manifests as symmetric proximal muscle weakness, which eventually leads to severe flaccid paralysis. There's bulbar muscle weakness, which leads to weak cry, poor suck, poor swallow coordination, pooling of secretions, and pulmonary aspiration. It's important to realize that type 1 SMA children do not have uniform levels of weakness, with some cases presenting at birth, but others not presenting until many months of age. It's associated with progressive, restrictive respiratory insufficiency, on top of the bulbar muscle weakness. The intercostal muscles are severely involved, so that inspiration is purely dependent on the diaphragm, and this causes rib recession and the characteristic sort of chest wall, bell chest shape, and a pectus deformity.
0: So it's helpful to know that the inspiratory effort of these children is largely dependent on their diaphragm, which is why they tend to ventilate better when they are supine or even in Trendella bird rather than upright. What else do you consider when thinking about their respiratory pathophysiology?
1: So children with SMA have sort of the worst case scenario from a respiratory pathophysiology standpoint. They have reductions in their total lung capacity and vital capacity due to muscle weakness. And often their residual volume may be elevated as a result of expiratory muscle weakness. So they really can't take a full breath in, nor can they fully exhale most of the time. Their maximal expiratory flow is decreased due to low lung volumes and muscle weakness with a reduction in their MIPS and MEPS or their maximum inspiratory and expiratory pressures. The reduction in their MIP and MAP is correlated with the degree of proximal muscle weakness. So in children with SMA, you can think of their gross motor delay as being somewhat consistent with their expiratory flow decrease.
0: Wow, so they're kind of set up for a lot of respiratory trouble. And in addition to chronic hypoventilation, they're also prone to other complications. It seems like atelectasis is often an issue for these kids. Can you talk a little bit more about why that is?
1: So, patients with SMA have multiple factors that increase their risk for atelectasis. They have impaired airway clearance, which can lead to obstructive atelectasis. Their neuromuscular weakness reduces the stability of their diaphragm and chest wall, which can cause compressive atelectasis. And they breathe at low tidal volumes, predisposing to atelectasis due to the chest wall weakness.
0: So, they definitely have multiple risk factors. Of course, patients with SMA are not the only ones at risk for atelectasis. When you talk about atelectasis to medical trainees, how do you describe it?
1: So atelectasis is the reversible loss of aerated lung, and it can be associated with impaired gas exchange and respiratory mechanics, which is why it's something we try to avoid. There may actually also be some replacement of alveolar air with edema fluid in the setting of atelectasis. So I think Mm -hmm. that's a little bit less clear.
0: So what are some reasons that atelectasis occurs?
1: So, atelectasis at its core is caused by an imbalance of forces that usually keep the lung open. One of the things we learn about in pulmonary physiology is the sort of this idea of there being a balance. The inward recoil of the lung, which is, has a la- elastic component to it, there's elastic tissues in the airways and lung itself. So, as it expands and gets stretched, it's trying to pull back in to sort of a minimal size that it would be if it were outside the chest while the chest wall is then having the outward recoil sort of holding the lungs open. And the exact balance of these forces at end expiration is what we consider the functional residual capacity.
0: So there are a bunch of factors that play a role in the development of atelectasis. Are there different ways to classify atelectasis?
1: There's actually sort of multiple ways atelectasis is classified. And so depending on the paper you read, They break it down into different groups. I more generally think of it in four groups myself, just because I think it's the easiest way to go about it. But I'm sure some of our listeners out there may not agree. So the first type of atelectasis comes from surfactant inhibition or absence of surfactant. It's unlikely to be a cause of atelectasis in someone who's otherwise healthy because there's a large reserve of surfactant. Though we certainly do see atelectasis in our infants with RDS. And so, that's something worth thinking about if you're working in a NICU. Then there's resorptive atelectasis, which is probably the most common kind we'll see in pediatrics. And that comes from the absorption of oxygen into the pulmonary capillary, which then decreases the alveolar pressure, which promotes collapse. This is mitigated to an extent in the airway by nitrogen, which is insoluble in blood. But if the FiO2 is increased in the alveoli, then the rate of oxygen transfer to the capillary is increased, and this leads to a higher risk of atelectasis, mostly because there's just less nitrogen there to protect the alveoli from collapse. This often will happen in occluded airways where there's some sort of airway obstruction that doesn't allow for ventilation of that alveoli, and so what happens is the oxygen trap behind the obstruction gets absorbed, the pressure within that alveoli is decreased, and then you're more likely to have atelectasis. So, the use of 100% oxygen can actually predispose patients to atelectasis. So, in patient groups that are high risk of developing atelectasis, it is often best to avoid high FIO2s. The last two types of atelectasis are compression atelectasis, which is atelectasis resulting from something outside the alveoli pressing on it and therefore causing collapse, like we would see in a pleural effusion or a chest mass, or anything that's compressing the lung. And the last is relaxation atelectasis, or passive atelectasis. And this is most commonly seen in a pneumothorax, where you have the loss of contact between the parietal and visceral pleura, and the loss of the ability of the chest wall to provide outward traction on the lung leads to atelectasis and collapse.
0: So it sounds like there's a bunch of things that can cause atelectasis. What are some of the consequences of atelectasis?
1: So, the consequences of atelectasis are multiple. There's impaired gas exchange because you have the absence of ventilation to still perfused alveoli, creating VQ mismatch. This can impair the oxygenation in diseased lungs, requiring increased FiO2 or pressure support. But increasing the FiO2 may actually worsen the situation. So, it's important to take that in consideration when caring for any child who has atelectasis and you're trying to manage it. There's impaired lung mechanics related to atelectasis. Atelectasis decreases the lung compliance. This leads to larger changes in transpulmonary pressure to generate any given tidal volume, increasing work of breathing, or mechanical ventilator pressure is necessary to provide adequate ventilation. You also have impaired pulmonary vascular resistance. So Ataloxysus leads to hypoxemia in the alveoli, which then leads to pulmonary vasoconstriction, which is a good thing. That's the way your body helps prevent VQ mismatch. But as you have more and more hypoxic vasoconstriction, the afterload, the right ventricle has to work against increases and increases. And this can lead to right ventricular dysfunction and even microvascular leakage. And there is also data showing that atelectasis worsens lung injury within the ventilator patients. So studies that are directed at minimizing atelectasis in people undergoing mechanical ventilation show less ventilator-induced lung injury, which is thought to perhaps be related to decreased reperfusion injury.
0: Wow. So even though atelectasis is reversible, it can definitely have significant consequences. Definitely sounds like something that we should be very skilled at addressing. What are some strategies that you use to address atelectasis for the patients that we treat with spinal muscular atrophy?
1: I think one of the things to think about as we sort of go into these strategies is, as with many things in medicine, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. We have a lot of strategies, especially within their neuromuscular weakness population, that are directed at preventing atelectasis. And that's really important. Once the atelectasis has sort of manifested itself, it can be really hard to get to go away. Many of our airway clearance strategies don't show the same level of efficacy um, when we're trying to sort of correct atelectasis versus when we're trying to prevent it. And so the way I approach sort of the prevention of atelectasis, treatment of atelectasis in the SMA population largely comes from a paper The Diagnosis and Management of Spinal Muscular Atrophy, Part 2, Pulmonary and Acute Care, Medications, Supplements, Immunizations, and Other Organ Systems. And this was released in the Journal of Neuromuscular Disorders in March of 2018. And it was sort of a big collaborative effort to create a more uniform and consistent level of care for children with neuromuscular disease and SMA specifically. Sort of the cornerstone of the care of these patients in preventing atelectasis is airway clearance. Manual chest physiotherapy combined with mechanical insufflation, exsufflation is recommended as the primary mode of airway clearance and should be made available to all children with SMA unable to sit on their own. And so there's two primary devices used for mechanical insufflation, exsufflation. Cough Assist is the one I'm personally most familiar with there's also a vital cough system, and so for the remainder of the podcast, I'm probably going to mostly adjust this as a cough assist device or abbreviate this as a cough assist device because if I have to say mechanical insufflation exsufflation a hundred times, <laughs> I'm never going to be able to get it out right and so i'm not I'm not promoting any one brand over another brand I just i there's no way I can keep saying this a couple dozen times. One of the things we've learned in the care of s m a is that aggressive management of respiratory illness with airway clearance is really important and that these should be introduced proactively in patients based on a clinical assessment of cough effectiveness or through measuring peak flow almost as soon as they're diagnosed. When initiating cough-assist devices, the insufflation excavation pressures should be increased gradually with a goal of getting to 30 or 40 centimeters of water of positive or negative pressure, respectively or at the very least, increasing them to the maximal tolerated pressure. I found that that's actually something that I think is a little tricky for people or people have some sort of hesitation about. You know, in little infants, when you're saying, well, let's let's have a goal of 30 or centimeters of 40 centimeters of water as your, as your goal pressure is people are really worried that they're going to have some sort of side effect from this mm-hmm. and tend to aim lower. Though we do know the lower the pressures are, sort of the less effective the device is going to be. And it's reassuring that the guidelines sort of says in the absence of significant parenchymal lung disease, small airway obstruction, or air trapping, there's not really a significant risk of pneumothorax using the cough assist. Though, especially in infants, there's a potential for aerophasia, gastric distension. And so many of these kids who will also have a G-tube, they do recommend venting the G-tube to prevent gastric distension and vomiting, which can obviously be a nightmare because they're over muscle weakness is going to prevent them from protecting their airway effectively.
0: Mm-hmm. And a lot of these kids do end up with endoplications, right, to prevent that?
1: There is a recommendation from, I don't remember which paper it was in, but if they're sent them to the OR, which is obviously a relatively complex decision to mm-hmm. make in someone with neuromuscular weakness, especially for a G2, do the fundoplication while you're there because you're almost certainly going to wish you already had done
0: it. <laughs> right, right.
1: And, you know, one of the things, this is sort of an aside, but one of the things I ran into was we had a child who was getting a application for reflux and airway protection. And the surgeon was really nervous about allowing the use of cough assist postoperatively. And it took a fair amount of discussion to convince him that, you know, our risk of of a bad respiratory outcome after anesthesia is relatively high. In these mm-hmm. kids with neuromuscular weakness. And so, you know, while there may be a slight increase in pressure that's delivered to the esophagus and may, you know, in theory, cause a problem with the healing of the fundoplication, I think at the end of the day, I always err on the side of protecting the respiratory status because it's such a fragile, fragile thing in these kids.
0: Yeah, definitely. and And like you said, the ability to vent the G-tube can help a lot.
1: So there are case reports suggesting the use of mechanical insufflation, exsufflation, or um, non-invasive ventilation to help prevent chest wall distortion. There's not really consensus on this, and so this seems to be really sort of center-to-center dependent. These are things where, in theory, if you're providing NIV and supporting the chest wall to have sort of its maximal excursion, you're going to prevent things like, contractures of the joints of the chest wall and keep the joints from getting stiff and allow to sort of maintain a maximal total lung capacity. And I think in theory, that makes sense. I think there's sort of a paucity of data on how helpful that is. And so there's a lot of center-to-center disagreement on whether or not we, or how we start non-invasive ventilation. As we talked about, swallowing can certainly be an issue in these kids. Oral suctioning with mechanical suction is something that should be offered early in the course of the disease, again, to allow for protection of the airway in the event of vomiting or even just excessive oral secretions. If they can't swallow well, their ability to protect their airway is always going to be compromised. The use of the vest or high-frequency chest wall oscillation, any of the brands of vest, does not seem to improve the clearance of secretions in the setting of an infective cough or improve air clearance of secretions. And so, talk about manual airway clearance with these patients. But I don't write for a vest until I'm sure they have their cough assist. Because mm-hmm. I have heard stories out there of prescriptions being sent for both and the insurance company paying for the vest and not the cough assist. Because they say, well, you have to fill the vest first, which then creates a real a real problem.
0: Right, right. You've, miss,
1: you've missed out on the opportunity to deliver the best possible airway clearance device for this specific pulmonary pathophysiology and now you're dealing with red tape from an insurance company standpoint. In the meantime, you know, these kids could be sort of ticking time bombs for respiratory failure.
0: Yeah, the cough assist machine is really incredible and there's great data around that. So definitely if you had to choose between cough assist machine um, or a vest, definitely would want to go with the cough assist machine for these kids.
1: The paper I referenced has a really nice table in it that has the pulmonary assessment, intervention, and management recommendations. And I really would recommend anyone who even sort of passively takes care of these patients, be it in a PICU or a pediatric floor or primary care providers, to kind of take a look at it because there are different recommendations for the assessment and interventions and care considerations in your type 1, type 2, type 3 SMA. And not all support is necessarily needed. I'm not gonna, I think, go point for point through the table, though I could. I think it's just good to know that it's there. It's a good quick reference, and it will sort of allow people to have a quick resource to look at for if they have one of these children who are admitted or shows up in their office.
0: Yeah, I found this table to be very helpful.
1: Now that we've sort of gone over some of the more general recommendations for this patient population, anytime I'm doing a talk or really just trying to get to know more about what these recommendations are and where they come from, I always try to do a brief literature review and see what are sort of the, what's the data? You know, I think that's where where modern medicine is increasingly growing as it should is any intervention we're doing, any therapy we're trying should have some data behind it to show that it has good efficacy. And um, that can be a challenge in some of these you know, relatively rarer conditions. I mean, this is not truly a, a very, very rare condition, but there's people out there in the pediatric pulmonary world who don't see a lot of these kids. And so, you know, we have this nice guideline, but where, where are these recommendations coming from? The first paper I wanted to draw people's attention to was Special considerations in the respiratory management of SMA by Mary Schroth in the Journal of Pediatrics in May 2009. She worked for a long time at your institution, Christina. So I'm sure you're pretty yes, I turned under her. She's an that. excellent teacher. Yeah. In that paper, she has the protocol she uses for the cough assist devices, and that um, came out of practice in Wisconsin. And so when well, they're asked to do the cough assist along with. Uh, secretion mobilization, postural drainage twice a day, and then as needed with desaturations or as often as needed when sick. One of the things I've found is if you empower families to do this at home, they're remarkably good at keeping their children out of the hospital. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Though practically, if they're doing it more than every three hours, they may need inpatient care just because there's only so long you can do cough assist, you know, airway clearance every hour to Before you just kind of get exhausted and tire yourself out, I don't know what your experiences are with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Usually, you know, if I'm talking to families on the phone and they're needing to do it more than every four hours, I'll I'll usually say that's probably a reason to be admitted, just because often these airway clearance treatments can take up to an hour, and so if you're doing them Q2, that's nearly continuous. And so the the families are amazing and they're very skilled, but at some point in time, you just need more hands on deck.
1: And so the protocol they use at the University of Wisconsin is to use a cough assist device, four sets of five breaths, followed by suctioning of any secretions, and then a period of secretion mobilization with manual or mechanical chest physiotherapy. Cough assist again, four sets of five breaths with suctioning. Then they do postural drainage, trangellinburg, for 15 to 20 minutes. Again, sort of clearing out some of the, you know, the lower lobes that might drain better in that positioning. And then again, a cough assist, four sets of five breaths with suctioning. I found that protocol to be very sort of practical and useful and helpful. I don't really have any experience using a different one, though some of our listeners may. And I I imagine that's still pretty similar to what they're doing in Wisconsin, um, even though this paper is almost a decade old.
0: Yeah, we definitely still use this protocol and um, it's quite effective. I think, you know, knowing that posterior drainage is part of it is an, another nice reason to to have these kids have a fundoplication, especially if they aren't receiving Spinraza or any of the newer treatments, or if their Nissen isn't working, consider GJ feeds, because sometimes if they're needing respiratory clearance so much, you can't keep pausing the feeds if they don't have any way to prevent vomiting and protecting the airway.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's something worth noting in that, you know, in the CF world, we mm-hmm. don't do tendril right, positioning right, yeah. anymore because it's associated with worse outcomes. In theory, I think the idea being that it increased reflux and airway inflammation from aspiration of reflux contents or something along those lines. So I'm not entirely sure we know for sure what it was. And I think that's more an operating theory. And mm-hmm. so most places for most conditions have sort of gotten away from that, especially if they have a Nissen, You know, it seems like a Perfectly reasonable to do in this population, and it is associated with better outcomes. So, you know, not all airway clearance is the same for not all, not right. all conditions.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, I do think that does make this patient population particularly interesting. Is I'm not sure there's really any others that we do postural drainage on anymore. for yeah, all the other risks associated with it. So
1: focusing more on cough assist devices in particular, um, it's sort of interesting to go back and kind of go through the history of these devices in the literature, to kind of get a sense of how did we know they work to begin with, and what are the things we've actually proven a benefit for. So the first paper that I saw that I thought was sort of practical to the discussion was by Bach, Ishikawa, and Kim. It was published in CHEST in 1997, and it's The Prevention of Pulmonary Morbidity in Patients with Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy, which is obviously a different disease, and certainly presents largely in a different age group, but I think has is a good place to sort of start when thinking about neuromuscular weakness in general. So They used a protocol where oxygen desaturation was prevented or re- reversed by the use of non-invasive intermittent positive pressure ventilation and assisted coughing as needed. And they looked at the hospitalization rates and days for 24 Duchenne muscular dystrophy patients on a protocol compared to 22 non protocol you say, muscular dystomy patients who were using a tracheostomy and um, IPV as their sort of respiratory support and, and airway clearance. And the protocol was anytime they were short of breath, ill with a respiratory infection, or just sort of generally fatigued, they would monitor their blood oxygen saturation with a home pulse oximeter. When the oxygen saturation dropped below 95%, the patients would use a combination of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, manually-assisted cough, and a cough-assist device as needed with the goal of maintaining normal oxygen saturations of 96% or higher. When compared to patients who did not use the specific protocol over a three-year period, the protocol subjects had significantly fewer hospitalizations, and the patients treated with proximity-driven protocol Had longer survival and avoided a tracheostomy for long. You know, this is a relatively small study over a relatively short period of time that I think showed some meaningful um, results Mm -hmm. for these patients. You know, a lot of our the families of children with neuromuscular weakness or the patients with neuromuscular weakness, you know, staying off the ventilator is a huge deal to them, and obviously Mm -hmm. they're all looking for increased survival, and so to see you know, this sort of meaningful difference in a small group over a short period of time, I think sort of underlines the effectiveness of this regimen.
0: Yeah, and definitely clinically relevant outcomes.
1: Our first sort of paper focusing on SMA in particular, um, again, came from Bach um, in Chest in 2000, and it's titled Spinal Muscular Atrophy Type 1, a Non-Invasive Respiratory Management Approach. And this, again, looked at a small group of 11 children, and they were studied during episodes of respiratory failure. Nine of these children required multiple intubation during these episodes, and so uh, these are relatively severe episodes of respiratory failure. Along with standard treatments, the children received manually and mechanically assisted cough to reverse airway mucus-associated decrease in oxygen saturation. They showed that in children with type 1 SMA, ventilated for episodes of acute respiratory failure, reintubation during the same hospitalization be considerably reduced using a cough assist device. The protocol used the cough assist device via an endotracheal tube plus an abdominal thrust to wean and extubate the children to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation without the use of supplemental oxygen. Extubation with the protocol was attempted when children were no longer requiring supplemental oxygen to maintain oxygen saturations above 94%, child was afebrile, chest radiographs had improved, and there was a reduction in need for airway suctioning. 11 patients underwent 48 intubations during the study, most often in the setting of an upper respiratory tract infection. The protocol therapy was used 28 times and a non-protocol conventional extubation attempt was done in 20th. Of the episodes, there were five extubation failures, defined as reintubation during the same hospitalization in the protocol group, while 18 of the 20 in the non-protocol group had extubation failures. So, you know, again, small study, big difference.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, it's an impressive
0: difference, yeah.
1: Right, right. I mean, we go, you know, we're talking about going from 10% failure to 90% failure rates just in the absence of the protocol. And so um, that's sort of the first, I think, look at we're on to something with his cough assist in the SMA group. that Really, Mm -hmm. we can see really significant, meaningful clinical outcomes using this device and having a protocol behind it. The next paper, again, first author of J.R. Bach um, in Pediatric Pulmonology, now in 2002 titled Spinal Muscular Atrophy Type 1 Management and Outcomes looked at 56 patients with type 1 SMA who developed respiratory failure before the age of 2. Patients either had group A which was a tracheostomy tube or group B used non-invasive ventilation and an assisted cough. 16 patients underwent the tracheostomy at a mean age of 10 months. 33 were in group B, um, the non-invasive group, and seven others died without any life support interventions during the study. Compared to the non-invasive group, the group A, or tracheostomy group, had fewer hospitalizations up until the age of three, but more hospitalizations after the age of five. And 15 of the 16 lost the ability to spontaneously breathe and could not speak any longer. And so this study demonstrated that children with type 1 SMA managed with non-invasive positive inspiratory pressure, plus a cough assist device can have prolonged survival without a need of tracheostomy, and with a hospitalization rate similar to those with tracheostomy and mechanical ventilation. But they also had the added benefit of freedom from daytime ventilator use and the preserved ability to speak. This is obviously pretty important for the quality of life of these kids.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting study. It's a little tricky because it wasn't a randomized study, right?
1: Right. And so, you know, one of the things we'll talk about a little bit later is we really lack sort of big, quality, randomized studies in these patient populations. And so we're doing our best with sort of case series and retrospective studies and stuff like that. But, um, you know, we sort of do the best with the literature we have available to us. And, you know, I think this this study sort of makes sense if you think about it. You know, the patients who get a trach and mechanical ventilation, they are going to be easier to keep out of the hospital because you can always turn up the settings or adjust Mm -hmm. other things. And I think we see that up until the age of three in in this study, they're going to have less hospitalizations because there's more we can do for them at home. But all of a sudden this flips after the age of five. And I think you could probably argue that the addition of the cough assist device mm. um, allowed them to keep their airways clear and sort of protect their airways from further damage, which then as, as the groups aged, um, allowed for them to have fewer hospitalizations um, as they got older. And so can I can I say with certainty that's what happened here? No, but... It it sort of feels right to me when you kind of look at this data. Like, what? Why is there a difference in age between the two groups? And I think, you know, having that sort of added benefit of um, having a cough assist, of having a way to protect the airways, keep the airways clear, limit chronic infection, limit airway damage, um, can certainly have long-term positive effects for this patient group.
0: Yeah, and and this study is fascinating. That it does show that these kids can be managed with non-invasive. Positive pressure ventilation, and it's not either tracheostomy or palliative care route. And so, um, it's fascinating the long term outcomes that they're able to follow.
1: Right, and you know, at some point we, I guess, we have to talk about this. But you know, with the gene therapy and some of the other therapies we're seeing for SMA now, it's a different disease. Right, Right, that's what we're hoping, anyways. I mean, I think that's certainly what the early data would suggest. And so, how many? You know, hopefully we'll get to a period of time where we don't have non-sitters anymore. We don't have to be so aggressive about this. We're not talking about tracheostomies in these patient groups. But for the time being, I think there's still a lot of people out there who have reasonably severe disease. And we have to know how to treat them, even though we know that there's a new generation of these patients who may not be as
0: sick. Yeah, I think, you know, even though we are seeing a new disease, I think some are now calling it gene-modified SMA. If they're still not completely normal and like you said we're still going to be taking care of these kids who weren't haven't been able to benefit from significantly from nusinersen or gene therapy and then also a lot of the the strategies that we use to manage this patient population can be applied to other kids with neuromuscular disease so i think it's a really good topic to talk about and also an exciting time for kids with sma and their families
1: so the next study is from 2004 and it's Mieske at al., The Use of Mechanical Insufflator in Pediatric Patients with Neuromuscular Disease. And I forgot to write down the journal that was in, but it's probably the only one of, from that author in that year with that title. Right. Um, so it looked at 62 patients observed in a pediatric pulmonary program with neuromuscular disease and impaired cough in whom a cough disease device was initiated. The frequency of reported use ranged from once a day to every four hours on a routine basis, with most patients using the twice-daily regimen that um, I think is the most commonly recommended. But, you know, we have this with all patients with all illnesses. Some of them are, you know, plus or minus adherent to some of these therapies, and some people are real go-getters and want to use it more. And so I certainly don't think that using it more often is harmful, it just may be you know, a big sort of time drain, and we don't know how helpful that is. And they reported sort of a complex result where they kind of broke it down into a bunch of different findings that sort of suggest this is a helpful. There was a 22-month-old child who had an acute episode of atelectasis, similar to the one in the case we discussed, who had almost complete resolution of volume loss in one day um, after starting the cough assist. The therapy in this group was found to be safe and well-tolerated. They had four patients within the group that had chronic atelectasis that improved after initiation of a coughysis protocol, and five patients within the group had reduction in pneumonia frequency. And so, you know, again, small study, and this one is really more just describing what happened within this institution after they started a protocol, but it's nice to, again, have some evidence of benefit uh, for using these devices, especially since they can be pretty expensive. And so we really want to maximize every bit of data we have to prove that they're useful before prescribing something like this.
0: Yeah, yeah. And they're they're really effective, but they're not necessarily the most comfortable device to use. Um, we've got the, you know, I've had the opportunity to try it a few times myself and it's definitely not the most comfortable, but if you can show patients and their families how effective it can be, I think, the adherence rate just goes up a lot and then they become convinced, but it can be a challenging thing to get them to adhere to at least initially.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, in some of the older kids who maybe have more preserved sort of neuromuscular um, strength, I've seen some of these kids who are really impressive at sort of fighting off the therapy in the setting of an acute illness. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if, if they're, if they're strong enough to fight the device to the point where you can't administer it, I think there's an argument that maybe they're maybe they don't need it.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely.
1: But I mean, it, their their disease is really the only thing I think that allows us to effectively administer it because I can't mm-hmm. imagine having this done to me regularly. You know, have sort of your airways pumped full of air and then have it all sucked out of you. I've never I've never gotten to experience it myself. I'm somewhat thankful for that, but I can't. I can't imagine it's a very pleasant uh, sensation.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely did not tolerate it well. They went quite nicely, but um, I, and I have seen that, and I know you have too. In that, the weaker kids tend to tolerate it pretty well, um, and especially if you start it early on in life, they, they just get used to it. But sometimes the stronger kids or kids, you know, with muscular um, dystrophy, defend that maybe were stronger early on in life and didn't grow up using it as a little kid. And then they have to start it on, start it later in life. It can be really hard for them to get used to it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And so practice makes perfect in these things. I mean, we know, <laughs> we know it's helpful, but um, as with any sort of therapy, you know, that has sort of a component of discomfort to it, you know, sleep apnea devices and a lot of these other things. Allowing people to get used to it, I think, can be definitely helpful in long-term buy-in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, you know, in these young SMA infants, they, oftentimes you don't have a lot of time to spare in sort of getting them going because it's such a rapidly progressive disease, untreated.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, and I have found, you know, working closely with the respiratory therapists can be really useful because there's some different track modes that you can use with auto-track or... Set how sensitive the machine is to to the patient in terms of automatically delivering the cough versus allowing the patient to trigger the cough. And so, respiratory therapists are some of my best friends, and all pediatric pulmonologists' best friends in terms of helping us find the ideal setting on each device for kids.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, as the number of you know ventilators and other devices you know increases, and in all the different modes and things within them increase you know, it's increasingly difficult to keep up with all of some of the subtleties of these devices. And so being close friends with a respiratory therapist will save you a lot of trouble <laughs> in trying yes. to figure out why the thing you're doing isn't working. And so on top of all of that, there is a British Thoracic Society guideline from 2012 on the respiratory management of children with neuromuscular weakness, which again, sort of recommended assist devices in very weak children. Those with bulbar insufficiency, those who cannot cooperate with manually assisted cough or in whom, you know, manually assisted cough or other airway clearance methods are not effective. And that these devices should be available in an inpatient setting anywhere you're treating children with neuromuscular disease. And that's because cough in children with neuromuscular weakness really does seem to get worse when they're sick. And part of that's atelectasis and some of the other mechanical factors going into it as far as just not feeling well, but both anecdotally, and, I, and there's data to support this, in the setting of acute respiratory illness, cough clearance sort of paradoxically worsens, which is not the way you would have designed it if you had a say in the matter. And so um, having these devices available in the setting of an illness can be even potentially life-saving.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes as pulmonologists, we, we get abnormally excited about coughs and strong coughs, whereas that's often a chief complaint of patients that they're coughing and we get excited if they have a strong cough.
1: Right. Right. Now, yeah. There's so many people just, it just make me stop coughing. And then you have to right. sort of, say,
0: no, this,
1: you don't like, just think, I mean, you know, one of the things I talk to parents about when I'm introducing, you know, cough assist is think about how much you cough when you're sick. Think about how often you're coughing. Think about how hard you cough. And then remember that, you know, someone with SMA can't, can't do it at all. You know, they're just, you're coughing every five minutes for two days and, And in in the absence of some sort of support, you know, we're not, they're not going to be able to clear their airways the way that you do. And so I think sometimes putting it into context was this is how much people need to cough when they're sick in order to protect their airways, protect, you know, themselves from developing obstruction and atelectasis and all the things we sort of talked about earlier on. Um, People with SMA have the inability to do that. And so um, we really need to assist them with that as much as we can. Um, to, to prevent bad respiratory outcomes. And I kind of wanted to wrap this all up by sort of noting that Morrow et al. Um, in 2013 did do a uh, meta-analysis of mechanical insufflation and excavation in people with neuromuscular disorders. And so this is looking at all neuromuscular disorders in all age groups, and um, they were able to find five studies that were randomized or quasi-randomized clinical trials or randomized crossover trials, and they, it was five studies with a total of 105 participants. And so, all of them were short-term, two days or less, and so they found that the included studies did not clearly show that cough assist improves cough expiratory flow more than other augmentation techniques, but, you know, I, I think we have to be careful in that this is sort of small groups, which is a problem in all all of these studies. But that it's multiple disease processes across multiple age ranges, and I think what we can see from sort of the pattern in the data is the weaker you are, the sicker you are, the more useful these things are. And so, you know, an older person with Duchenne's who has you know adult-sized airways and maybe can sit on their own, and is not the same as a three-month-old sort of severe type one SMA. And so the SMA data is really sort of useful, but no one's really done, you know, a big randomized study within this group. We're mostly talking about the data we've already mentioned as sort of the driver of this. And so, you know, the meta-analyses may not agree with it, but I think those of us who've cared for these children, you know, have certainly seen the effectiveness of these sort of therapies.
0: Yeah, and this is a nice summary of the studies that are out there, and I think just goes to show that Like a lot of things in pediatric pulmonology, we just need more studies. So, if anyone listening is interested in in pursuing that type of research, there's obviously a need for it. Can I ask what what happened to that five month old that you took care of?
1: At that point, we sort of got involved and we used a really aggressive cough assist regimen and um, really did our best and, and had a fair amount of opening of the um, right side. So the right middle, right lower lobe is Obanabo. There was some persistent atelectasis of the right upper lobe. And despite sort of aggressive, you know, airway clearance and postural drainage and secretion mobilization, we really couldn't get it open. And what actually ended up happening was the child was transferred to another facility um, that was an SMA center. And they have one of these devices that's like an external um, system where instead of doing the cough assist by doing positive pressure and negative pressure through the airway, it was done externally to the chest. So they put the child in this like plastic shell. And I have no experience with this. And after a couple days of that, that right right upper lobe sort of opened up. And, you know, we were able to preserve that right lung for long period of time afterwards or if we hadn't been able to get it open, you know, the longer you have a, a portion of, of the lung that's collapsed, the, the harder it is to get open. And so I think there's a lot of things to sort of take from that case. Think things that could have been done better, maybe more aggressive airway clearance post operatively and using higher pressures than were we'll used in the case certainly could have helped. But other things would be, you know, not switching to CPAP, not switching to high flow leaving mm-hmm. them on the BiPAP until they're ready to come off, sort of following some of the protocols that have evidence behind it may have res- prevented this whole thing from sort of happening to begin with. And part of that is you really need to have sort of an awareness of this amongst all levels of care in an institution taking care of children with SMA. You know, anesthesia has to know that in using of routine oxygen therapy during any sort of procedure may be a hindrance to us and you know, the PICU unit needs to be aware that when when weaning a child from BiPAP or invasive ventilation, going to high flow or CPAP as a bridge really isn't recommended in these children because their neuromuscular weakness and their hypoventilation is best sort of corrected by using bilevel level pressure, um, non-invasive ventilation. And trying to keep them off oxygen is going to be the thing that decreases the chance of you having as you're waiting the support. And so, you know, this is something that at our our institution, we really, you know, learn from. It's like, okay, well, we know we're not supposed to do these things, but if the night team taking care of the mm-hmm. child and the PICU doesn't, they may wean in, in a different way than would be preferred, and we may run into trouble. And so, you know, I think it was sort of an important learning experience. And in any child with a complex illness, having all levels of care associated with them have some sort of background education is really helpful.
0: Yeah, it's a great learning case. And I think one thing that's so challenging for some of these kids is, you know, unlike an uh, otherwise healthy kid who has got bronchitis, you can throw them on nasal cannula and, and be pretty happy with in the in the 90s. If you do that to these kids, you might be masking significant hypoventilation because ventilation might be the primary cause of their hypoxemia rather than VQ mismatch in, in a respiratory illness. And so if you're not careful, you can get CO2s pretty high pretty fast without if you're not giving the proper positive pressure ventilation that they need.
1: Yeah, and, and, and this is an important thing I think to be able to con, to convey to families too because I have plenty of families who've you know given me a call and they're like oh the oxygen acids are, dro- are dropping and we're doing all of these things can't we just have some oxygen to keep it home so we don't right. need to come to the hospital? You know, they're like, you know, there's all the other kids out there who have oxygen for all these other reasons. And why, you know, why can't we have that? And, you know, it's kind of walking them through, the physiology of SMA and explaining why putting oxygen on is a Band-Aid, but not only is mm-hmm. a Band-Aid, but it may actually make things worse, is important to be able to communicate to them so that they understand why you're dragging them to the hospital again.
0: And I think it's important to know that it's sometimes these kids do need extra oxygen bled in through their BiPAP, but that your management strategy should really be to bump up your BiPAP settings and improve the ventilation first. And then if they're still needing supplemental oxygen, you can bleed it in through the BiPAP or if they're really sick, um, you know, through their tracheostomy tube or their ET tube. But if you're ever giving them extra oxygen, it's really important to watch their CO2s because they're at such high risk for hypoventilation.
1: Yeah, and I think there's data on this. I think there's anesthesia literature from neuromuscular disease. I don't have the citation in front of me. Um, There's like sort of a theoretical cutoff where if you can keep your FiO2 less than 40%, your risk of absorptive atelectasis is less. But as you increase the FiO2 over 40%, you start to increase the chance of that electasis. And so, you know, I, I think the older kids get, the bigger they get, the easier it is to use a little bit of oxygen because you're not, mm-hmm. you're not flirting with higher FiO2s that may compound the problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, a lot of our patients are the same way in terms of we don't, we don't have them have supplemental oxygen at home for kids with SMA, we might have them on primary and secondary BiPAP settings, but. In general, if, they, if they're still not able to keep up their O2 with that, we want them in the hospital in part so we can analyze their FIO2. You know, at home, they can bleed in certain liters per minute of O2, but we don't necessarily know what that correlates in terms of FIO2.
1: And so sort of putting this all together, when you when you think about, you know, these are the recommendations and these are where they're coming from, I mean, there is some data on the efficacy of this more in the long term. There's a study from... I don't know how to say this name, Askui, it's O-S-K-O-U-I, At um, all, it's the changing natural history of SMA type 1, it was published in 2007, and they found that ventilation for more than 16 hours a day, the use of a mechanical insufflation excavation device, and G-tube feeding all showed a significant effect in reducing the risk of death. In the SMA type 1 population. And so the best data we have on SMA kind of validates what the guidelines suggest. And so, you know, my real goal in going through these papers was to, you know, allow for the aspiring pediatric pulmonologist or the young career pediatric pulmonologist to understand, or this is where these recommendations are coming from, and this is why the experts think that there are reasonable things to do. There's people out there who are very anti-guideline, very anti- Committee very anti this or that. and so you know I think in an answer to some of the people who don't who don't like guidelines sort of in more in general to actually go through and look at some of this data will help us understand that these things seem well thought out and we really should be trying to kind of adhere to it as best as we can.
0: Well, this is a really interesting topic. Thanks for presenting your case and all the data that you found behind our management strategies.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I guess you're welcome to the listeners (laughs) out there. I think it's an interesting sort of area to learn about, and it's something, especially in the pediatric pulmonary world, that we're going to interact with a lot. Neuromuscular weakness is of any kind. Really always find their way to pulmonary one way or another, and, and having a good knowledge base, let us take care of these patients. Saves them a lot of trouble because, again, I, I, you know, apart from our neurologist colleagues, I don't think there's a lot of familiarity out there with SMA. And so in respiratory concerns, respiratory failure are ultimately the, the most common risk of morbidity and mortality in this patient group. And so knowing how to help, what we can do to help, I think can be a huge benefit for these patients.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Thank you for listening to Tidal Volume by Breathe Easy Pediatrics. If you have questions, comments, or future topic ideas, please email us at ATSPeds at gmail.com. Or catch us on Twitter. The ATSpeds Twitter account is at ATSpeds. My Twitter is at MSUpedsPoem. And Christina's Twitter is CB underscore Bereta. So we look forward to some interaction and some ideas on how to sort of optimize this in the future. Thanks again for listening. Have a wonderful day.